Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For soldiers who have received a severe wound to the face, there's a moment during their recovery when they must look upon their reconstructed appearance for the first time. This is known as the mirror test. Utah native Cale Weston spent seven years on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan working for the U.S. State Department in some of the most dangerous frontline locations. Upon his return home, while traveling the country to pay respect to the dead and wounded, he asked himself, when will these wars end? How will they be remembered? And what lessons can we learn from them? In his new book, The Mirror Test, Weston delivers a mirror test for our nation in its global role and looks at how America is viewed in the world and how the nation views itself. Gail Weston is uh, coming home to Utah on uh, Thursday tomorrow for an event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. 7 p.m. is when that starts. He'll uh, be discussing and signing the mirror test, and he joins me for the hour uh, today. Cale Weston, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so uh, you grew up in the Orem area, I believe. I did. I've got family roots that uh, gave in more rural. Uh, my parents were both born and raised in Milford, Utah, and then they headed north, and I grew up in uh, Utah County. I was reading a very interesting uh, piece in the New York Times written by your twin brother, Kyle, and in that piece there's a picture of you guys, I don't know, you're two or three years old. <laughs> a little On the big well. Bl- blonde, <laughs> blonde-headed boys there. Um, it was interesting to see this through your your brother's eyes, and he he wrote about how where you were in Iraq and Afghanistan, he's you know he's home in Utah skiing, and there's there's a bit of a, a disc, disconnect. I wonder if that's one of the things you're getting to, Harry. Let me uh, pull up this this quote. He quotes you as saying, "There's a difference when a country, but not a nation, goes to war." Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. I you know I am glad he did that. I think it's an important frame for for everyone you know who's been over there, which is how does war affect your family, your friends, the people you're closest to. And I think a lot of the good books out there are starting to get into some of those issues. But uh, I believe, you know, when you mobilize as a nation, wars tend to tend to end sooner. And I'm not sure we ever really mobilized as a nation. Our country was at war and is still at war. Uh, but I doubt very many Americans feel like they have a, a part of that war, and it's not necessarily their fault. Um, but I know when my grandfather and Great uncle were in World War II. There was probably a, a closer connection. Uh, these are you point out. These are it's 15 years since uh, 9/11. Uh, these are two the two concurrent wars right now. They're our longest wars. They are, which is really remarkable when you think about it. I know there are probably students in Logan at Utah State, and I've I've been there to talk to several very good students uh, who asked very good questions about the war, and I think, wow, they've probably only known war uh, for most of their lives. Yeah, that's, that is incredible to think about. Um, I want to, uh, well, get into why you got into the diplomatic uh, corps. And this is, uh, you have a long history in your family of uh, military uh, veterans, right? Right. Uh, did, did service to country, is that why you got into the diplomatic corps? You know, in high school at uh, Mountain View, I used to hang out with a lot of the foreign exchange students. So I think, you know, when you get older, you look back and see patterns that when you're young, you don't. And I think even as a teenager, I used to look to the, the globe more than, I guess, what was going on locally. And the friendships that I developed with the foreign exchange students, I think, were kind of inside of my DNA. But also, I just, I was learning a lot by being around people who were quite different than your your usual Orem, Utah native, and I think 
that led me to my first actually research paper, which ironically enough, uh, in Mr. Lindstrom's English class was on the UN Security Council, and then I found myself sitting in the UN Security Council, uh, you know, later on when I joined the State Department. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, these, these patterns are kind of odd when you when you look back. But I think I was always interested in service, but you know, foreign things and foreign people. Hmm. Do you think you were a bit unusual in that in that respect? I, I tend to see uh, young people and uh, Americans in general as being a bit insular focused. Probably, I you know I was I was a nerd in high school. I used to watch uh, Prime Minister's Questions on PBS, but I also <laughs> watched ben, I also watched Benny Hill. So there was two sides of okay, my late okay. night <laughs> TV watching uh, habits. But you know I had maps on the wall. Um, I don't know. I guess I've always just sort of been geared toward thinking, you know, what's going on far, far away, but, uh, you know, still very much uh, a fan of the mountains and the deserts in, in our beautiful state. Mm-hmm. You, um, I think you volunteered to to uh, take an assignment in Al-Anbar province. You arrived in, in Iraq, um, that were, you know, infamous as being one of the most violent areas of the war. Why, why did, did you do that? Uh, um, I met a few Marines who asked me, and uh, I knew that Fallujah was between the first battle and then there was the impending second battle, which was the largest fight in the Iraq war. And of course, today, Fallujah's being cleared or attacked, whatever the right word is, um, to try and get the, you know, the, the terrorists out. So there have been many, many rounds of fighting there. But I, I wanted to be out of Baghdad. I wanted to work with the military. I think that the Marine Corps has a tremendous um, ethic uh, in a bad place, and if you're going to be in a place like Ambar, I guess I found the tribe that I wanted to be with. Uh, the Marines, you write, the Marines in Al Anbar ask you if the war in Iraq would be worth it. Boy, that's a question. What? How, how did you answer that to to those those young Marines? I think that's going to be a question that echoes for a very very long time, and it's a very important one. I think. I've actually come to terms with it in a new way, which is there's a memorial in South Boston uh, that reads, if you forget my death, only then will, uh, uh, will, will, <laughs> sorry, if you forget my death, only then will my sacrifice have been in vain. And I think that that's the way I, we should all look at maybe some of these wars that obviously haven't ended and haven't ended well at all for anyone. But the Marines are there to, to, to do a mission and are there to to fight and they fight hard and they fight well uh, but as you get home and I know a lot of my friends I'm in Denver now and a lot of you know, the people I'm seeing here are veterans and they're having their own reckoning uh, with that question but I don't think they confuse it with what they tried to do and what they were asked to do on behalf of our nation that question I think really could only be answered most honestly if, if they're prepared to do it is by the people who who start wars or send us to the wars, because once we're there, uh, we do the best we can. Uh, but I didn't have any good answers. I knew too much on the inside of what wasn't working on the policy. Uh, but, you know, I was honest. I didn't try and kid them, and I think they would have been able to tell if I had. The the folks of your book, you're, uh, you are focusing on the, you're focusing on the fighting men, you're focusing on the effects on the people on the ground, mostly, are you? But you're also asking the those other larger questions about I'm, what you know. Was it worth it for the for the nation for for the world? Yeah, I'm trying to provide a, 
a ground level perspective. You know, there have been some books, some good, written by big people and famous people and politicians and generals, and, and they're all necessary in a way. But I think what the gap has been in the war literature from Iraq and Afghanistan is what does a Fallujan think? Who is a Fallujan? Uh, even more importantly, what does an Afghan think about the war in their country? And I try and remind people that our wars are being fought in their neighborhoods. So ideally, Iraqis and Afghans will get their own their own writing, their own voices on paper. But I think maybe my book is a halfway point until we get there, which is I'm a guide. It's not all about me. It's not the memoir where I went to kindergarten, where I went to high school, and my first date, none of that. It's truly I'm a guide through two wars. And come with me and you'll see a lot, and hopefully the people and the stories that will stay most with you uh, will be the Marines on the ground, the Iraqis and the Afghans. Unless we forget, uh, in excess of, what, 6,700 Americans have been killed in the, those two wars. And I think even more likely to not be focused on hundreds of thousands dead and maimed uh, civilians in in those two countries. That's right. And, you know, the numbers are still going up. Uh, they're not They're not over. The statistics that are in my book are from, you know, 2015 when I handed in the manuscript. But... Sacrifice in war and the cost of war, uh, I think, should always be thought front and center when you're a nation as powerful and as big and, and as influential and as good and sometimes bad as we are. We do bad things, but we also do a lot of good things. And when you know, a presidential election year talks about issues of warfare, uh, I think we as readers of books, but also, more importantly, we as citizens who vote, need to take that decision extremely seriously because once you start a war, uh, they're very hard to end. And the division of the book is three parts, the wrong war, the right war, and home. And I intentionally uh, structured it that way because I believe the Iraq war was a wrong war. I believe the Afghanistan war uh, was a right war. We needed to do something after 9-11 and the Taliban were not going to hand over Osama bin Laden. And so President Bush had to basically use our military to uh, to do what we did. And then the home front, I think, is where the costs of war still go on and on and on, and that's true for, like you say, the Iraqis, especially in the Afghans, but also for uh, for many military uh, service members and their families. I wonder if you talk a bit about the uh, 31 Angels. Uh, this, uh, this was a... Uh, well, uh, tell me who the 31 Angels are. It's a kind of a fulcrum or an anchor of the book, um, a, a personal story. Um, we had a tough decision to make in Al-Ambar province in late 2004. I was working with the Marine leadership, and we were trying to figure out how best to support the Iraqi election that was coming up in January of 2005. And again, often in war you only have bad options, but we did have a decision to make whether we were going to send Marines to many small places across the province or uh, whether we were going to focus on the two big population centers in Fallujah and Ramadi. And a very uh, important and a very uh, wise Marine general who's now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, uh, advocated focusing on Fallujah and Ramadi, and he dispatched his officers to Fallujah, and I was you know, working at that time with uh, General Halick, who's a higher-level, basically, Marine leader, and we opted, but he asked me, well, what should we do? It's a State Department political issue, and I said, we, we should go wide, because if you're 
an Iraqi politician in your town, you know, like in Ephraim, you don't get to vote, you're going to be angry and you're going to say, I didn't win the election because my people didn't have the chance to vote. What happened is there were two large helicopters that were heading west uh, late one night over the desert, and one of the helicopters crashed, and 31 service members, 30 Marines and a corpsman were killed. And I guess I, I focus on them for two reasons. One, accountability in war uh, doesn't happen often enough, the higher you get in the chain of command. Uh, but also, I believe these people who die in war, Marines in this case and a corpsman, or the Iraqis I introduced and the Afghans are not just numbers. Uh, they have people with stories, and I wanted to spend some of my book trying to uh, tell their stories. So I have visited a number of their grave sites, and I introduced the hometowns where they come from. And then the last map of my book is personally, I think, probably the most powerful one, which shows coast to coast all of the dots of the hometowns where our service members come from. And I think it's a good visual reminder that First, not everyone gets buried at Arlington, and secondly, that when a service member dies, uh, the pain is in a family, but often the pain is also through a whole community. Yeah, that map is pretty impactful, it's, and it's all over the U.S., you know, to, to many of those dots in Utah, for example. Um, oh, I, I, one, I, one of the uh, 31 go ahead. is buried in West Valley. West Valley, uh, yeah. Yeah, my, my plan is to, to be there this Memorial Day. Wow. Uh, uh, I, I, I waited on Matt, um, but he is the uh, Utah uh, angel who died in a helicopter crash. There are, I was in Wyoming, in Newcastle, Wyoming, small town there, uh, Cherokee, Iowa. Corporal Schubert's buried in Galva, which is just outside Cherokee. And probably the most powerful, uh, still moves me when I think about it, is when I went to Menard, Texas, where the pilot of the helicopter is buried, and it's a it's very much an un-Arlington setting, and I wanted to, again, remind readers that you know, when the president goes to the postcard, you know, I think he'll be there this weekend, and it's green and it's beautiful, and General Dunford and all of our top military brass will be there. There will be a lot of other smaller, quieter memorials in places that you know, have chain-link fences around them, have coyotes howling in the background, and... I think one day it would be important if one of our leaders decided to maybe do Arlington in the morning and then fly uh, to a place like Menard or, or Newcastle mm. or Pinto, Utah, for that matter, where mm. my great uncle is buried. What, where, where is he buried? Pinto, Utah. Pinto. Where is that? Uh, in the middle of nowhere okay. outside of Cedar City. He was. Yeah. Uh, he survived World War II, but uh, we think probably... Uh, uh, was a suicide years a couple of years after he got back, and so Pinto is where part of the family roots are from. There's a photo in the book actually, which I put in there because I wanted to show if you see Arlington Pinto and the cemetery there is the most opposite from Arlington I, I could imagine. Hmm. And so he personalized you know that sacrifice in terms of my family story. The the part of the book for any Utah listeners out there. Uh, is monument, to Monument Valley, and I, I do a couple things there. One, you know, I introduce um, Harold's story, but I also talk about the Downwinders because that's also part of my family story. And I, so I basically say, even though I was working 
on behalf of our government that my government half a century ago was detonating you know nuclear bombs that that poisoned you know Milford and, and places where my parents and my my relatives all come from. My editors in New York loved it because I think they had no clue you know that part of the western story. Oh, you, you think uh, some parts of the country, I guess there's a gap in that knowledge. Of course, in Utah, we're, we're very familiar with this, this story. We are, and I, you know, when, it, when it went into New York, you know, I think my editor ended up thinking it was some of the strongest writing, and you know, my book's not a memoir, but I think as a guide, I needed to, to help tell the reader, you know, here's a bit about me, and I wanted to do it in the frame of two things. One, the Downwinder story, but also um, Topaz, because I think Topaz is still relevant in the Japanese-American internment camps. I mean, we need to remember our own history, which is when we as citizens get afraid, watch out. And uh, I think there's a lot of fear out there today. Mm. I want to, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to um, talk about a little bit more of this. When you came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, you then went around the country. I think it uh, took a while to... To decide to do this, but to, but you you then decided to go. I guess what and uh, talk to the families of the thirty one, um, and the, as you say, this is a fulcrum for the book. I also want to talk about larger view. This was very interesting to me. You opened the book with a Rudyard Kipling poem, "The Last of the Light Brigade," which is responding right. to Tennyson's "The Charge of the Light Brigade." And there's yeah. a lot going on there. Let's take a break first, and then we'll talk about that. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. One of the best skills a leader can develop is the ability to ask questions. Not questions with an implied solution, but neutral, non-judgmental questions that show respect for employee commitment. For example, why is that important? What would our customers think? Why are you committed to this course of action? How does that make you feel? There is no judgment in these questions, just honest curiosity that assumes the employee is committed and gives the employee respect. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu what's up? I'm Shad. The actor and activist George Takei will be my guest. In the years since Star Trek, progressive talk has become his trademark. We'll talk about his involvement in Pride events in Toronto and Asian whitewashing in Hollywood. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Cale Weston. He's a Utah native. I grew up in uh, Orem. And uh, he ended up uh, seven consecutive years in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, working uh, for the U.S. State Department, but uh, attached to uh, or working with uh, Marine units. Uh, he ended up on, on the front lines in uh, many of the worst areas of fighting uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. His book is The Mirror Test. America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like with a question or comment, and uh, there are two ways to do that, by uh, 
Toll-free phone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, Kale Weston, uh, early in the book, um, you you reproduce uh, the last of the Light, light Brigade, uh, Rudyard Kipling, was this to provide, I guess, perspective? That's certainly what it did for me, that this, is, this has been going on for a long time. So first of all, tell me that we we're familiar, I think, with Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. I hadn't been familiar as much with The Last of the Light Brigade. What's that? That's right. I, you know, you're the first person to ask me about it. I'm really grateful you did because I think you pick up on sort of a very nuanced or implied theme that I'm trying to carry through the whole book, which is, yeah, the Charge of the Light Brigade is the, the hero's charge in and you know, it's what we all, if we're going to study poetry, at least sort of are familiar with. But, you know, both poems are based on historical fact. And even if it's just 2% of the readers or even you uh, that Google, you know, what the, the Kipling side of the story is, I think it's where nonfiction can be especially powerful. And what happened is in the Crimean War after, you know, truly what Tennyson wrote about, you know, happened and they were kind of like, you know, heroic uh, on the, the front end of war. Uh, truly, uh, when Kipling was writing, you know, the last of the Light Brigade were were trying to raise money for you know their needs, and the British truly gave twenty pounds and four. Um, the irony there also is that Kipling, you know, as a great poet in 1890, had no idea that you know in 1915 his only son would be killed in World War One. And I won't, you know, as a history major, I I love all this, but if if people are interested, it's a pretty moving story about. Rudyard Kipling basically telling his son, in effect, you know, go be a man and go fight. And how was Kipling's son killed? Well, the the witness accounts say he was defaced, you know, before he died. So I put that in there to not preach, um, but to maybe have people reflect a bit, which is it's easy to sort of celebrate the beginning of a war, maybe when the nationalism is at its height, um, but the long-term costs of war um, are tremendous. And you know, the last line of the the last uh, stanza, I guess, is, oh, 30 million English that babble of England's might. And I think it's at a time when, you know, it's relevant, which is we're the most powerful country in the world. We're overstretched, but we still have this tremendous military that can do um, some good when we use it right and can, it can also cause massive destruction. And the troops will tell you more than anyone, you know, we need we need wisdom um, uh, when when we're considering which wars to to fight, and that's the preface, sort of, for I think some of the key themes. And writing, I think, can be a powerful um, uh, form of accountability. And so you'll see through the book and even through the photo insert that I'm trying again to get out of the way of the voices of other people as much as I can. And I think the photos, like the poem. Uh, are powerful in their own way. And my editor and I and another editor, we spent three hours going through 500 photos to boil them down to basically 95, 90 of which are mine. And I think if readers buy the book or look at it, you know, some may not care a whit about what I wrote, but a few of those photos may stick with them. And for Utahns especially, I think there's a local angle that uh, they might find interesting. And uh, I think one of the things you're doing, at least, is trying to do is put the put a face on the cost, right? Of of war. For sure. These are yeah. these are. I, I think sometimes we forget these are teenage 
young men, you know, in twenties, and and yeah. many are killed, but many come home, uh, you know, maimed, uh, crippled, um, PTSD, um, you know, uh, traumatic uh, brain injury. And Aaron Menken, you know, is the first cool character, real human character I introduce, um, and his story is a tremendous story about a Marine. Uh, who was in a horrific, you know, explosion in 2005. I met him in Fallujah, and he's, you know, showing the scars of war, but the resilience of war, too. So while PTS and, and physical scarring is, is, is a huge part of these wars, triple, double, even quadruple amputees, there is in the home section of the book sort of also that, you know, not all these stories end badly. And I think Aaron, you know, it's worth reading more of his story. And his mother has a very good and moving book out about her relationship with her son, Diana Mankin. And and I hope that, you know, by sort of referring to his story, people can on their own maybe seek out more of, of how he came to terms with, with how his war interact changed him, but also how he has managed to be a spokesman for an organization called Operation Mend which is based out of L.A., and they do a lot of incredible work uh, to help, for example, you know, get a finger so that a, a female, I think she was a soldier, could, could put her ring finger, put her ring back on her ring finger. And I write about one of the um, you know, chief people at the uh, organization told me that another wounded service member just basically had one request, and I said, what was the request? And he said, can you help me smile again? So mm. while these wars have not been fought in the way that World War II was in a mobilized American home front with Rosie the Riveter and the draft and even in Vietnam, I do think as citizens who read, or maybe who don't read, but Twitter, we can all still you know, try and learn more about what's gone on and, and try and become more educated. And I think that's where you know, Utah State, the University of Utah, have, have done some some good things, and I think they're teaching these wars in maybe a more human human way than just, oh, they're over there and you don't know anyone in the military. I was interested in this. would be a good uh, place to bring this in. By the way, we're talking with uh, Cale Weston. His book is America, uh, The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. Cale Weston is uh, coming home to Utah for an event at the King's English Bookshop, and that is tomorrow evening at 7. Uh, he'll be uh, discussing and signing his uh, book, The Mirror Test. Uh, you uh, quote Maya Lin. This is the beginning of a, one of the chapters, I think, the beginning of the epilogue, perhaps. Uh, it, she, of course, designed the Vietnam Memorial. She says, I deliberately did not read anything about the Vietnam War, uh, which, <laughs> which struck yeah. me. And I, I <laughs> guess what, how I took that is she wanted to focus on the the people right and, and the uh, politics uh, of the war she believed you know yeah, almost, she, i think in fact the design of the memorial and so does how would you suggest that the war be taught or how we think about and it's specifically the wars you were over there for uh, iraq and afghanistan again I, i'm glad you pointed out that part of the book because it, it is sort of trying to raise the the human dimension to, well, okay, we as a nation, we memorialize our wars, and for anyone who's been to the National Mall in Washington to walk or to jog, and if you haven't, I suggest, you know, the field trips start, you do get a handle on how we eventually come to terms with right and wrong wars. And I think she was trying to design a memorial for a, a wrong war. I mean, I don't think anyone says that the Vietnam War was going to be 
celebrated in the way that you know D-Day was. Um, but I, I think that what you need to do, and this is just Kale Weston speaking, is to try and find writing, to try and find uh, journals uh, that are personal and unfiltered. And I'll give two examples. I integrate through as much of the weave of my book, again, the Iraqi and the Afghan voices. And there's an Afghan medical student named Jamshid who emailed me in 2012 after I had been home. I was probably in Springdale or the Wasatch Mountains. Maybe I was back east. But And it is a very powerful email for the reason that it was sent to me when he heard that Neil Armstrong had passed away. And I, I put it verbatim in my book, and I wanted readers to, to understand that even though when this kid is looking up at the moon from the easternmost edge of Afghanistan with our drones probably hovering overhead, he still sees the moon and that American really global story about a man walking on the moon. So it's in the book, and, and I hope people, if you buy the book, will we'll find it. Because even in a war zone, he said, in effect, you, you know, Neil Armstrong showed that anything is impassable and that you're a country that got to the moon. Um, the other example is the, the end of the book after the myelin reference that uh, actually includes a journal from, from Balin Orr, who's, who's from Logan. Uh, he was a student at Utah State. And when I went there to go speak, you know, he emailed me later on and we stayed in touch. And he said, yeah, you know, put, put part of my journal in your book. And I still believe it's some of the most powerful writing in the whole book. And I have 203,925 words in this book. Hmm. Not that I'm counting, but it's a long book. And I think some of the most powerful writing that I hope teachers and professors start to integrate in will be the Iraqis, the Afghans, and a guy like Balin, who in Sadr City uh, during his deployment was just basically like a good Utah kid getting on the computer every night and sort of telling his family and friends, you can tell here's what happened today. And again, I don't think my New York editing team had any clue, you know, what the power could be of just getting out of the way of, of a journal. And finally, I'll say that, you know, if you go back to earlier wars, I still believe the most powerful way to learn about war is to read the Northerners, you know, journal uh, in the Civil War compared to the Southerners journal, compared to the slave owner, compared to the slave. And I think I tried to do a little bit of that in this book. And if I have an opportunity again to write, I may make that my main focus, which is to just introduce voices that have been lost so far. It seems like, and you've mentioned uh, lost just now, remember, seems like a, that's very important to you, probably for families of those who are still over there or who have returned, that is to remember. Remember and honor? Yeah, I, I think if you remember, you know, amnesia uh, tends to spread quickly like a virus because war is not a subject that, you know, if you're at a bookshop or you know, you probably want to run to a different section first, but I think it's almost an obligation if your country's at war to try and do your part at least to understand. I don't think, you know, if you're born in Nampa, Idaho, or Logan, Utah, you need to join the Marine Corps necessarily or join the State Department, but I do believe there's a certain citizen responsibility, especially given that these wars are ongoing, and yes, the two longest in our history. Because we are Americans, when we do something, multiple, multiple countries, millions and tens of millions of people are affected. And I don't think, um, you know, it's an excuse to be naive uh, 15 years into a war, maybe year one or year two, 
there's a lot of good writing out there beyond my book. There's some great fiction that has come out from writers like Phil Cly, Elliot Ackerman, Matt Gallagher. Um, there's nonfiction, you know, out there. A book called uh, Consequence about uh, torture, which I believe is a, a, an important nonfiction book. So, you know, people should try and build a pile, and there may be only two chapters of my book that stick. But I, I hope. Um, you know, each reader finds among the 40 chapters something that maybe they hadn't thought about before. Remembering, I think, you know, is is what happens every day for a veteran who was serving in these wars. I think for people who don't have a direct tie to uh, the wars, it's, it's harder because you don't have that family member or friend. Uh, but I still think you can and should do it more than just one day in late May. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Cale Weston. Uh, his book is The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to hear uh, some more about s- some uh, individual people that uh, you profile in the book, um, not only the Americans, but uh, you you uh, worked closely with and you profile Iraqi truck drivers, Afghani teachers, uh, city council members. You had the street-level view. I want to hear more about that following the break. I'm Fred Child, looking forward to taking you to a concert in New York City. Pianist Emmanuel Axe with the New York Philharmonic playing the dramatic Piano Concerto No. 2 by Brahms. Plus, Bruce Adolph has this week's Piano Puzzler on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. We'll follow a service dog from the prisoner who trained him to the young woman in a wheelchair who will have him for life. So, buddy. See you later, buddy. Bailey, are you ready? Speak. Good boy. Pause. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah native Cale Weston uh, spent seven consecutive years in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was with the State Department. Uh, he was uh, connected with the Marines, and he was on uh, in some of the worst areas of fighting. Uh, his book is The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. Cale Weston will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 uh, for a discussion and signing of his book, you can interact with Cale Weston there. You can interact with him now at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, uh, or by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Cale Weston, uh, I think one of your assignments was to go out and talk to family members of civilians killed. Uh, one of the things... I'm sure a contentious point were drone strikes. What what did people tell you about the drone strikes? Yeah, that was a. I I, I tackle that a bit because in Fallujah, you know, a decade ago, we were basically just peering with metal metallic eyes from the sky, and we didn't yet have the armed drones. And you know, it's hard to believe that you know initially ten years ago we didn't have any missiles attached to our drones. And my how. Uh, you know the companies managed to produce uh, weaponry real fast, and and so by the time I got to Afghanistan, the drones were were a, a, a bigger issue, 
And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I believe there is a need for surveillance. Um, surveillance can help keep uh, Americans safer, um, but the way I think we're using our drones is the problem. Uh, it shouldn't be our strategy. It should be a tactic. And if you look at the cost in communities of drones that kill children and women and innocent civilians, that's where I think the calculation uh, gets very red and very bad because I can tell you in my province in eastern Afghanistan where I lived for a year and a half, one civilian casualty would be a ripple through dozens if not hundreds of, 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 of Afghans. So how I put the equation to our own government when I was working for our government was, you know, just be aware that if you want more roadside bombs planted and we live here full time, if we drop bombs that don't need to be dropped, if we, for example, yes, torture people and that gets out, um, this is going to be a lot more dangerous for every American that is here. So just look at the issue with open eyes. I believe that our, our safety is more tied to the values that foreigners see in us, whether you're an Afghan medical student like Jamshid, who still knows the Neil Armstrong story better than probably any American his age, more than our weaponry. But is there a need for surveillance? There is. And is there the occasional need to, to kill a Taliban commander through, through a missile? Absolutely. Um, but overall, I think Americans are going to be a lot safer uh, if the people around the world see us not because of our drones, but see us for what we still like to think we represent. And I get into some of those things in my book as well. And uh, that includes, I think you would say, in fact you do say, um, going and talking to people, including going and talking to the enemy. You you went and talked to Taliban leaders. I did, and uh, I think um, they were, quote, reformed Taliban, and that's the, the title of the chapter. But I wanted to humanize them as well, which is that, you know, when you work with the, the State Department's objective of kind of building bridges, you don't always get to choose, you know, who your counterpart's going to be. And when I worked for our mission in New York City, I was negotiating with Chinese and Russian diplomats. And on some issues, we had a lot in common. On other issues, we were on completely diametric uh, sides of the table. Uh, I didn't view my work in Iraq and Afghanistan differently, which is the only way wars end is if you get fewer and fewer enemies, whether you kill them, and sometimes they need to be killed, and the Marine Corps is very good at that, the U.S. Army is very good at that. Uh, but more importantly, how many of the Taliban in that case were going to willingly drop down their weapons? And I used to tell the soldiers I worked with there that, you know, I don't walk into these meetings feeling entirely comfortable either, but unless more of these particularly 20-, 30-year-olds who were my age at the time Taliban decide to reintegrate back into Afghanistan, we will never we will never see the end of the bloodshed because there's a lot more of them and we're fighting in their hometowns and their neighborhoods. And I think most of the soldiers who had been on two or three tours uh, became wise to that fact very quickly. They didn't want to be shooting, you know, for another decade. Hmm. What what do the I guess the you you talk to families right uh, the, those killed in action and uh, I probably talk to those wounded in action. Um, what are, what are they saying about seemingly endless nature of these two wars? You know, I here in Colorado I was talking to a couple of Marine friends at an, at an event and um, there's different different kinds of reactions but I think it's hard because you know if you fought in Fallujah 
you turn on the TV today and what's what's the headline literally today, you know, Wednesday morning, May 25th, a few days before Memorial Day, it's that you know, the Iraqi government is sending in, you know, its soldiers and, and militia to, to clear out the city that maybe your best friend died in or, or, or you yourself were, uh, were wounded in. So that there's not an ability, I think, to sort of have closure, which is a word that usually is not at all tied to war, I think. Um, but I also think, you know, what's starting to happen that's that's more helpful is that the veterans I know are are having reunions and they're getting together for a long weekend or they're, you know, specifically carving out a part of their schedule to reminisce and to reflect and to tell good and bad stories about their tours. And I think that's healthy. I don't think anyone I know in the Marine Corps wants to be doing it every weekend for the whole year. But for a long summer weekend, I think it helps put things into perspective. And I, I believe that, you know, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Neller, who's a great leader, is starting to really push those kinds of gatherings because that, I think, is where some of the uh, healing or some of the perspective uh, happens. And then I think the rest of the year, you know, a 25-year-old Marine veteran or a 30-year-old soldier can sort of start to compartmentalize a bit more. I was uh, struck, this is one of the, almost the last thing in your book. Um, you talk about your 12th grade English teacher, Mr. Baldwin, Mountain View High School. That's, that's right. And and then you say, years later, I befriended another teacher, this time in the middle of the Iraq War, Mr. Abbas. Tell me a bit about him. You've really done a close read of the book. I, I, I'm grateful for that. I you know I wanted to, to, again, make a connection between if you're a teacher in you know Utah or you're a teacher in Afghanistan, um, you know, there's more in common there than, than we would like to think. Mr. Abbas um, was starting to translate the English books I would give him to Arabic, and uh, he had a small library and was very proud. He spoke English beautifully, um, which made it easy for me because my Arabic basically sucked. And so he was starting to try and say, I want, you know, Fallujans and Iraqis to, to read this stuff, and since it's not translated by a publisher, I'm going to start to do it. The, the, the sad side of that story is is that, you know, you'll read about what, what happened to him, like so many other leaders in Fallujah and, and these wars, that, you know, if you were working with the Americans, you were viewed as a collaborator. And I've, I've got a, a chapter called Collaboration, and it's intentionally titled that, which I think forces readers, and I'm hearing some reactions now, what would you do if you're living in Logan or Salt Lake or Boise, and suddenly the Iraqis show up and say, come work with us. You know, we're here to help. We want you to vote in a year or next week. And, you know, what would you do? And these were the decisions that the Iraqi leaders had to make daily in a place like Fallujah. And so Abbas was, was one of our key partners. And, and I think he, I hope, is one of the characters, real characters, that stays with readers well after they close the book. Yeah, you, you feel his dreams. He, he wants, I think he wants to open an English school, English language yeah, he taught, he taught, he taught oh, English. Oh, he taught English, so he, yeah. Yeah, he was the yeah. English teacher, and then he was basically starting his own uh, translation project. And I thought, wow, you know, here's a guy wanting to get, you know, to the Iraqi people what we have to say in our books. And I'm thinking, I hope one day, you know, there's an audience out there for, uh, for what Iraqis have to say. Mm-hmm. Because really, they should be the ultimate judge of how these wars have been fought, what they liked about what we were trying to do over there and what they didn't like. And I, I get to that question a bit in, in, in the museum chapter where, you know, I take the reader into the Marine Corps Museum, and they, they're trying to tackle these questions 
themselves about you know their branch of service and what did these wars mean. But but the good news is is that I think there will be some some of the best books written about these wars still have to be written. I'm proud of my book, but I believe that the best books are still out there in small communities across America and overseas and and in places like you know maybe Fallujah one day. And and it'll take time, I think, to sift through all this. And I'm excited to see what comes out over the next few years. We're in the middle, of course, of a presidential campaign. You have to be in a cave to miss that. Uh, what what would you, in general, advise the presidential candidates who are, after all, going to be making these big decisions in the years to come about the, these these wars and what lessons we learn? Oh boy, we should do a whole show on that. Um, I think that. You know, we need to be honest about the lessons that I think are clear from 15-plus years in Afghanistan and uh, or almost 15 years in in ongoing warfare in Iraq, which is that, you know, you're only, I think, going to be as effective as the kind of partnerships you have with the people who live there full-time. And we Americans usually think there's no mission we can't do. There's no uh, weapon that won't fix a problem, you know, if it's if it's a threat. But really, I learned in the seven years in both wars that every year I was in each country, I understood 1% of what was really going on. So I had to rely on my Iraqi friends and partners. I had to rely on my Afghan friends and partners. So arrogance at a presidential level is danger, danger, danger. Um, I think you know, listening to the wisdom that's been accrued, especially among our senior military leaders, and gratefully General Dunford, I think, will still be there between administrations, whoever it is, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton or who knows, President Romney. But I still think that the wisdom that has basically come from these wars really needs to be listened to, because I'm not sure it really has been, whether it was President Bush or President Obama, for that matter. And I think that, that there's an incredible um, incredible amount of it there. Finally, be careful when you start wars because they're easy to start. They're very, very, very hard to end, especially these kinds of wars. So those would be a few points, and I would probably be able to write about a 20-page uh, policy paper for, for all the rest. All right. Well, yeah, maybe they'll ask for that. Uh, uh, just a minute left. I want to bring this back to individual and and, and back to, to me, back to the listener. Memorial Day is coming up. How would you suggest would we honor those who have served, uh, I guess those who have died, memorializing them, or those who survived and have come home, and how, how do we reach out to them, help them? You know, I would I would say... You know, go go to your local cemetery. You know, we'll we'll see what's going on in Arlington on TV. But you know, go go walk around and notice how many veterans are buried. You know, in your hometown cemetery. And and I'm always always struck with the little cemeteries I went to that you know there would be a Marine who was killed in Iraq, and then three tombstones over would be World War One, World War Two, the Korean War. So just you know, don't don't just do the quick and easy in and out. The other thing is, is I would say go to a website called FallenHeroesMemorial.com, and it's it's got some of the most powerful, I think, tributes from friends and family members, and I, I integrate some into my book. And all it is is, you know, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, humanizing the loss by saying, you know, I remember when we were at boot camp, and we're going to come see you in Wyoming. 
and they're having a conversation, you know, with with Brian Bland, who who is buried in Newcastle, Wyoming. So, you know, the barbecue, the baseball, I get it. The, the sales are great over Memorial Day weekend. But I would say this memorial, you know, maybe pause a bit longer. And then more importantly, you know, think about who you want to be the next commander-in-chief because I think the, the greatest thing we as citizens can do is take very seriously that vote that's coming up in November. And I don't care who you vote for. Well, I do, but I'm not going to say. <laughs> and you should think very hard about, are we going to get a commander-in-chief that's worthy of the sacrifice that eventually is going to come? And do we have wisdom in that commander-in-chief? And if we don't, write someone else in. Cale Weston is a Utah native. He is author of The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, by the way, uh, there's a website, jkweston.com, uh, some interesting uh, photos more they promise coming there. Um, and uh, Cale Weston is uh, going to be in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock, King's English Bookshop, to discuss and uh, sign the mirror test. Cale Weston, thank you so much. Hey, Tom, I appreciate you and uh, Amy and everyone who worked on uh, uh, the call today. It was, it was a privilege. I've, I've been a longtime listener. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, join us tomorrow. We'll have the president and CEO, Wayne Pacelli. Um, he is uh, talking about his new book, The Humane Economy. Join us tomorrow. Commentator Gina Wickwar. Learning that a close relative is in the early stages of Alzheimer's is at once totally shocking and deeply saddening. I've been hearing about this dread disease for over 40 years. Stories from my friends who had mothers, fathers, aunts, cousins, spouses, in-laws, and on and on. People who had either signs of the disease or who were being cared for at home or in an Alzheimer's care facility. I listened and sympathized and offered my shoulders for them, but the stark reality of facing the disease didn't really crawl deep into my heart and soul. It resided in my mind as a poignant but distant fact, not a living, breathing one. Ah, how that has changed. So how did I come face to face with this cruel thing? I'm five and a half years older than she, but we've always been very close. We hadn't seen each other for about four years, yet talked weekly by phone. But her husband was always in on those conversations. That puzzled me, and I began to wonder why. Then I gradually realized something was very wrong. Her phrases and stories were being repeated with increasing frequency as the months went by. One of the most common was her saying, I miss Mommy and Daddy so much, don't you? Our parents have been gone for many years, so this sweet but repeated query didn't seem to be a normal or reasonable one. Perhaps it was that that prompted Vin and me to visit them in Florida. On a long day trip to the Kennedy Space Center, we spent some time wandering around the immense Space Shuttle History Museum. She ducked inside a restroom, and her husband asked me to wait for her because he said she'll be frightened when she comes out if there's nobody here she knows. Throughout the day, if her husband and Vin were walking a few paces ahead of us, she'd become very agitated and would constantly ask where he was. She was, in truth, a mild basket case when faced with new or at least rare situations. At the end of the day, when we were traversing the vast parking lot looking for our car, she waved at the park autos, dismissing them. 
She'd given up driving, she said, because she just wasn't happy with Miami traffic. I nodded, but I knew, of course, this was not the real reason. After all, she'd been driving in Miami's big city traffic for many, many years. That visit to Florida clinched it. Both Vin and I knew. But did her husband? I texted him soon after coming home, coming right out and asking him about her short-term memory, her confusion, her inability to find items, to cook, to drive. He acknowledged her memory and other abilities were fading. He'd tried to talk with her about it, he texted us, and had even taken her to see a doctor, but that had caused her so much distress, he dropped the subject and the doctor visits. He himself was suffering from a mild onset of Parkinson's, so he was a bit unnerved by the significance of the challenges facing them. After that illuminating text conversation, Vin and I made a decision. We'd ask him to persuade her to move to Logan so the two of them would be close to us. Thankfully, she embraced the idea, and he made the decision that this was the best thing to do. We'd all be together in a town with lovely people, a marvelous hospital, really professional health care, and many options for home care or facility living if it became needed. They're now here in Logan, living in a small retirement enclave, and loving everything about Cache Valley. Well, almost everything. The winter months were a bit startling. Vin and I are here for them, and so are many other loving and caring people. We're moving ahead one step at a time, and with luck and good care, they will remain in that home for a long time to come. This is Gina Whitmore. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The time now is 10 o'clock.